I want to add my word of appreciation to our ministry partners and grateful for them and thank you for um, thank you for praying for them. Um, their their efforts really are tireless until uh, you've uh, actually been and kind of uh, witnessed and seen some of their struggles and their hardships. It's hard to know. Um, so much of their life is given to just sustaining life, uh, as you can imagine. Um, that all the things that they're doing in the course of ministry uh, and their involvement with people uh, in very, very intimate ways uh, to seek to help them and to uh, give direction, to counsel, to pray with. Uh, to travel to all of those things are just uh, are just incredibly hard and difficult. So if you would pray for them, uh, we would encourage you uh, to attend our members' meetings as we have opportunity to talk about our budget issues because we support some of them financially and we report back uh, about how that financial support goes to goes to help them. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter 6. Last week, uh, several of you mentioned uh, how you received particular encouragement from the text, and I want you to know that I I did as well. When I first outlined how we would work through Hebrews uh, and how we would navigate through it, I actually coupled last week's text and this week's text together. But as I was preparing for last week, uh, I just saw such a blessing there Uh, And some of you were recipients of that blessing as we looked at that text uh, that I felt like it would be better just to separate these two two parts of the text, not because that they should be separated contextually, because they shouldn't, uh, but just because there was so much in both of those texts. And I don't even think we'll begin to even scratch the surface of the significance of our text today. But I, I just want you to know that I hope you are... Uh, blessed even this week as we attend this teaching. And uh, as we attend the text, uh, my heart is is that God would attend our hearts. Uh, so I want to ask you, if you will, to, to pray with me before we read the text and that God would speak to uh, your heart and pray for yourself in regards to this because uh, your attention here today uh, and, and your giving of time and conscious effort of hearing what God's Word has to say is important to you. And then pray for those around you as we're uh, here worshiping together. So let's pray together. Father, I do ask, Lord, that you would speak uh, even again to my heart regarding this text. Uh, Thank you, Father, for the ways that you have already spoken to us through your Word uh, this morning. Uh, We thank you, Father, for the encouragement that we have had as we've been able to sing the truths of your word, and even now as we give attention to this text, uh, would you speak to our hearts and direct our minds to give attention to uh, the serious nature of this word of encouragement uh, to us. Uh, In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, So that we don't lose bearing when we're reading this text, let's back up to verse 9 and read through verse 20, uh, and if you will, just follow along. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same, uh, the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now our aim this morning is to consider two questions, uh, the answer to those two questions, and then how these two questions and answers, if you will, uh, are in relationship with each other, how they're integrated. I'm just going to state the question. The first question is, how specific are our lives shaped? Let me ask it another way. Are our lives shaped for one specific thing? What I'm speaking of is of knowing and experiencing God and His glory for all eternity. I was thinking about this this week. Are we consciously aware of this in our own living? And if we were aware of it, wouldn't that necessarily make a difference in the way that we perceive and respond to each happening in each moment of our lives? Is life really to be lived with that kind of integration of thought and perception? In other words, is do we just live or is there a, a cerebral component of our living to where we give conscious attention to everything that is happening in our lives and in our family's lives around us and around us in the world. And the second question is this, can God be trusted? Is he believable? I don't mean that with any sense of disrespect, but just simply, is God trustworthy? Can we count on him to do what he says. Now I want you to think about those two questions for a moment. We would be hard pressed to ask any two questions that carry any more weight. Are our lives specifically designed for one thing and can God be trusted? Is my life specifically shaped for this one thing? And I believe these two questions are equally important today for the young and for the old. We read just a moment ago in our call to worship about even when we get gray hair, that we're giving consideration to the things that, that God is doing. And we're even asking because the psalmist understood that it was of such significance that when we have no hair, when we have gray hair as we get older, that God would grant us to be able to pass on the reality of who He is and what He means in the course of our lives to another generation. So if you're here today and you're young, if you're here today, if you're old, if you're somewhere in between, if you're married or not, whatever it is, I believe that these two questions press hard on us today. So children, I want to encourage you today to please listen because the things that we will say today, as we have already said, they apply to you. They apply to you when you walk on a ball field, when you go to school, when you're at your desk studying, whatever it is that you're doing. And for all the rest of us, I believe these things apply and center in on why we exist. So the question, how specific are our lives shaped? And how does this text that we read help guide us? Well, remember that we're speaking of things that belong to salvation. So back up in verse 9, it's not a part of the teaching text, but it's the background for it. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now remember, last week we looked at the comparison that was being made between those who heard the gospel and responded in belief and whose lives took on a new shape. Their lives were compared to land that had received rain and produced crops. Scripture says useful for those whose sake that it's cultivated. Uh, I would argue that that could be looked at in two different ways. But our lives are lived out for the sake, and we have heard this over and over again, are lived out for the sake of the glory of God in pointing to Him and our lives being lived out before Him that for His sake we live our lives because He is the one who has granted us life but also for the sake of His glory as it is understood and known among others so that they would look at God too. John Piper would argue that is the very heart of missions, to make worshipers of those who are not yet worshipers of God. Because missions, he says, will cease to exist but the worship of God continues into all eternity. So we are pointing to this fruit that is being born, and it was compared to those who heard the gospel, who had experienced in some way a recognition of the degree of the importance and goodness of the gospel, but who ultimately did not believe. They were characterized as land that received this same good rain, but bore thorns and thistles. Speaking specifically, we stated, of apostates, those who seemed to be believers, but who eventually proved not to be. And the proof was in the fact that they left the church and they denounced Christ. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We were talking about this earlier, and Mooney and I were speaking. It's interesting that Jesus spoke these words when he was commissioning his disciples. And in this commissioning service, so to speak, he speaks to them about the reality of persecution, hardship, death, struggles. He was calling them to acknowledge the reality of what it means to follow him. And may I add that it means no less today. And even though we have not yet maybe first-hand experience of brothers or sisters in Christ who've been severely castigated and persecuted for the sake of Christ, we shouldn't somehow believe that God's call on our life is a call to lesser commitment. We realize in looking at Hebrews that it was not a call to lesser commitment. And why is this significant? Well, it's significant because look at what verse 18 has to say. It's significant because we who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, we are talking about things of salvation and now we are pointing to the connection between hope and that salvation and what is being encouraged what is being exhorted here is that we hold on to the full assurance as was stated up earlier in verse 11 hold on to the full assurance of hope until the end and now we're hearing it again to hold fast to the hope set before us remember that we've already heard exhortations and warnings along the way Adam reminded us of some of these back here a couple of weeks ago when he was speaking. But let's run back through them again because I, they all tie to each other. They're connected to each other. In chapter 2 and verse 1, we've heard that we should pay attention to what we've heard about Christ. That's true of us today. Mind you, please 
listen already to the things over the course of the weeks that we have said about Christ, about what the author of Hebrews has said about Christ. We are not just speaking hopefully into the wind. They are to make a difference, lest we drift away. In chapter 3 and verse 6, we are to hold fast our confidence in the hope that we have in Christ. You hear it again. To hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ. Do you recognize the song that we sang just a moment ago? Uh, in Christ alone, our only hope. He is our only hope. In chapter 3 and verse 12, we're told to be careful that we do not harbor unbelief. In our hearts. In chapter 4 and verse 1, that we should be aware of the dangers associated with unbelief and therefore in our unbelief not enter into his rest. In chapter 4 and verse 11, that we should strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's the reason we have been looking at the law in a concentrated way in the course of our confessions. Because as we begin to talk about obedience and disobedience, it rests into our obedience and disobedience of the law of God that is good and loving and kind and intended for our good. And then in chapter 5 and verse 11 and following, we have been talking about that we are to guard against apostasy. That means guard against, turning away. And that's what we hear again here in our text. To hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And being encouraged to do so and receiving encouragement as we do so. We should pay attention so that we don't drift. We need to look out for unbelief. We need to go on to maturity. We need to not grow weary or faint-hearted. These are serious concerns that need to be addressed. They needed to be addressed among the Hebrews and that congregation. I need those. You need these. Why? Because our lives are shaped for one specific thing. And that thing rests in this hope that we are being told to hold on to. Well, what is that hope? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us a picture of it. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look at this text later in our teachings in the next weeks. But Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 22. Uh, here's the hope. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Did you hear that? The firstborn, part of this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's our hope, that we will enter into the presence of God. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 17 in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life. Listen, young and old, this is eternal life. That they may know you, Jesus said, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There is no more profound message of the single purpose of life than is found in that statement in John 17. And what is John 17? It's the high priestly prayer. It's where Jesus intercedes before his death, intercedes before the Father 
on behalf of his disciples and those who would come to believe in the message of the gospel as the apostles would preach it and as it would continue on through the rest of time until the Lord returned. Christ is our high priest, our perfect high priest. That has already been introduced. We're going to talk about that some more. But think about it in terms of him as our high priest interceding for us, saying that the most important thing in all of life for which every person has been shaped for is to be in the presence of God, to know him, to intimately know him. I would ask, is that what is most important in our lives? Is that what we are consciously aware of as we are navigating through our daily responsibilities, as we are interacting with each other, as we are interacting with others, as we are doing life in the context of our home, as we are as children responding to our parents and our siblings as we are engaged in sports and at school, as we are in life, at work, relating to each other as husbands and wives and friends and brothers and sisters. Is that what we have in our mind? I would argue that everything in Scripture points to that, even to what seems to be the most mundane thing. If it's taking out the trash at the end of the day, it is shaped in our lives by the very providence of God that we would come to know Him and that we would see every act as an act of worship and allegiance to Him as we navigate through life. Why do I say that? Well, I'm looking at the text, and what do we hear? Look in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And as we're going to see in just a moment, the very example of that is Abraham. In the course of his life, everything had been shaped around the promise that God had made and what his life would look like as he listened to God. What is all this? Well, it's absolutely clear that knowing God and Jesus Christ is a thing that is of most importance. It's what Christ came and died for. It is what the Son of, of God's life and death and resurrection secured. So, the question is, is our life, is your life for one specific thing? And the answer to that is yes, to know God in Christ whom He has sent and to dwell with Him in eternity. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. When under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to these believers, hold fast to the hope that is set before you. Now, what does this have to do with us believing in God? What does this have to do with the integrity of God? It has to do with the integrity and credibility of God because this hope that we are speaking of is a hope that is ultimately tied to the promise that God has made. Back here some years ago, I was asked to do something, and I said, I'll do it. And then... Some days and weeks went on and came back and said, will you do something? And I said, I'll do it. And some days went on and I still hadn't done it. And said, will you do it? And I said, I promise I'll do it. And some days went on. And finally the person came to me and said, don't make little of that word promise. It is really an important word. Well, it wasn't my intent to break the promise. But I had secured, at the end of the day, I had secured it with a promise that I did not keep in the time frame in which I had promised. My point is, is that every one of us in here at some time or another have made promises that we didn't keep. God has secured this hope and has promised this hope. So the question would be, can we trust Him? 
you, you may not always be able to trust me if I say I promise. I, I'm confessing that. I'm not telling you that I am seeking to lie to you. I'm just saying that my integrity and your integrity is not the same as I believe that Scripture proves out for God to be. Because we will fail and God doesn't fail. Notice that in the last part of verse 12 we read, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then, as I said earlier, the example is who? Well, the example then points back to Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And why? Well, notice what was said. God, when he made the promise, he had no one greater to swear by but himself. So he swore of himself. Some of you have maybe been to court. Maybe there have been some time or another you have had to give testimony. And you have been asked if you went to the court of law. And I'm assuming they still do it, attorneys. Uh, They have a witness do what? Place their hand on what? The Bible. That may not always be the case. I, I don't know what's coming. But at least up until now, the hand is placed on the Bible and a word of promise swearing that what is being told is the truth. Why is the hand laid on the Bible? And why is it that it is said And so help me God. Why? Because there's no greater name to swear by. And there has at least over the course of time here in our nation, there has been understanding that this is God's word and there is no greater word to swear by than to swear by the word of God. Because why? Because it has been understood that it is always true. We're making an oath stating that what we're saying is true, which is what the author of Hebrews says for in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, it is sworn to by God. In other words, my word at this, what I'm getting ready to say if, if my word fails, then that means that God's word has failed with an understanding that God never lies. He never fails. And so, whenever God was promising to Abraham, he swore by himself because there was no one greater. That's pointing back to Genesis chapter 22. I'd invite you to turn there just a minute. Because I don't think we can fully understand the significance of what's being said if we don't at least understand what's happening here. Abraham's faith was grounded in the promise of God. Now, I think most of us are familiar with what is this story. The story that God comes to Abraham in a pagan land and he reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham believes. He calls him to trust him. God calls Abraham to trust him. He trusts him and he calls him to follow him and he follows him. If you want a picture of what the gospel is and how the work of the gospel works in a person's life, just look at Abraham's life. God comes to us in, his sin, in our sinfulness. He reveals himself and his goodness to us in the midst of our, everything else. We recognize that goodness. We believe in him. Then we trust him at his word and we follow him. That is what God calls us to do. We referred to Matthew chapter 10 earlier. I would encourage you to go and to read the whole chapter because that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do. is to believe in me, trust me, follow me even to death. And that's what he tells Abraham to do. And he makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
And again in Genesis chapter 15, we hear that promise again. And then in Genesis chapter 17, we hear that promise again. And the promise rests in land and progeny. Land and a nation. Not just a child. Yes, a son. But nations that would come from him. And uh, there is something very uh, salvific about this nation and this work is that one would come from this nation that would ultimately wind up blessing everyone and that one is the line of Judah. Jesus. Now mentioning that because in Genesis chapter 22 Abraham has realized at least part of this promise. He has realized this promised son, Isaac. And if you'll read the first part of Genesis chapter 22, you will also understand that he has come to the place that God has called him to give this son back, to sacrifice him. And Abraham carried out every detail with the intent to do exactly what God told him to do. And then, it'll, and then about midway through this chapter, you'll see that God says no. And sends one to stand in the place of Isaac in this sacrifice. And here's what comes out of that in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Listen. By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now that's important because God had already promised him those two things. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. His faith was grounded in the promise of God and God had secured this promise with an oath swearing by his own name. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing back to. Now I know what most of you are probably thinking as I think as well when I think of Abraham. We're thinking that my goodness, this was a tremendous act of faith. Bringing the very son, the only son that, that was connected with the promise. Bringing this son to give back to God and to sacrifice and to do exactly what God had said without any understanding and being able to see beyond what all that would mean. But we also are reminded something else about Abraham. And that is, but Abraham wasn't always faithful. And you would be thinking, right? But yet that is not what Paul points us to in Romans chapter 4. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. Because we're going to hear something that I think bears out for us as we give consideration to the trustworthiness of God. And this thing that we are to live for as we look to God. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, he's making an argument here for faith now. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to uh, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Making an argument for faith that is spread out among Jews and Gentiles as well. Who is the father of us all? Speaking back of Abraham as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations. And in the presence of God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now listen to this. In hope he, meaning Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now when we go back and read the Genesis account, we would say, I don't see all of that reflected. Is Paul wrong in that? Are there conflicting stories and conflicting accounts? No, they're not conflicting. No, God had given Abraham faith to believe. And that's the reason when we look there in Hebrews chapter 6, that we are told that we are to be imitators of those whose faith and patience inherit the promises because that work of faith was given to them by God and it worked out. And it was worked out because God has secured that faith in the life of Abraham to the end that he held on. And he is telling the Hebrews to be imitators of that kind of faith and to trust in that same way to the end to hold on to the promises without wavering. Why? Because God can be trusted. God is going to give the faith. God will At the end of the day, He is going to deliver everything that He has said that He will deliver. He did so in Abraham's life. And He will in ours. We can believe God because we have His Word. And we have His oath. And all of that is sealed and secured in His work. Verse 18, For that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What two unchangeable things? God's Word and God's oath swearing by by His own name which For God, His own name is His work, and His work is His name. Pointing to the very fact that what God promises, He will deliver. Now, why is that important for this church? Why is it important for you and for me? If this was a class, I would ask Mooney to tell you what he said earlier. He said, I don't know when... I can remember in the past, but recently I have recognized, he said so this morning, I have recognized that death is in my future. It is certain that I am going to die. Be certain today that if the Lord doesn't return, that we will die. The author of Hebrews was writing to these people that would ultimately die. Some were going to die at the hands of those who were persecuting them. And he was reminding them, do not lose heart. Hold on to the hope. And that hope is a promise that God has made that there is eternal life. And that eternal life is knowing God and His Son Jesus Christ. And it did not rest in everything wasn't coming at the end. Some of that was being experienced right then because it was the experience of the glory of God in God's work in their lives as it is those here today who have faith that keeps us moving ahead with the realization that there will be a day when life ends here that we will in fact be in the presence of God. We will be in that holy Jerusalem as the author of Hebrews says as we will stand before God and be with Jesus Christ. That ought to be a great word of encouragement to the young and to the old here today. And it is certain and sure. Notice what is said up in verse 11. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. In chapter 3 and verse 6, that we would hold on to the confidence that we have that Christ is our hope. And then we see here, we who have fled for refuge. When do people flee? We flee from things when we are being under attack. We flee from things that would bring about a certain fear to us. We flee from things that would serve as a threat to us. When we're reading this text, please see that we who have fled for refuge, what have we fled from? Oh, we have fled from the dangers of unbelief. We have fled from the danger of hell. We have fled from the danger of standing under the judgment of God. And we have fled for refuge to, as the psalmist told us this morning in Psalm 71, that our only refuge is in God. Where our confession reminded us of all these other things that are can do neither good nor evil. That cannot be depended upon to save because they can't walk. They can't talk. They are formed and fashioned in our own minds as means of salvation when there is only one who saves. And that is God alone. And so when the author of Hebrews is speaking to the church here and writing to the church, he's saying, take courage that the assurance of your hope rests in Christ Jesus, God, and His Word, and His oath to His promise of, what did Jesus say in John 17? Eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Do we struggle at times with that assurance? Next month, my mother will have been passed away seven years. In some ways, it seems like a lifetime. And in other ways, it seems like yesterday. Some years before she passed away, we were talking, as we often did, and a lot of it about spiritual things. And we were talking about eternal security. And, and she said, Jimmy, she said, do you think that anyone really knows if he or she was saved? And I said, Mama, I said, I believe that it is God's intent according to His Word that a believer be assured their salvation. Now, my mother was a believer. But like every other believer, and probably like everyone here at some point or time, there was a time and a moment in her life that she wondered if one could really be assured. Now, for my mother, it wasn't because she didn't believe that God was trustworthy. Her struggle was the same as mine and yours at times. It's not whether God is trustworthy or not. It's whether we are. And we oftentimes look at our own lives to see if our lives measure up. And you know what we often see in our lives? Let's be honest and confess it. Is that we're not always trustworthy. Are we worthy of salvation? The answer to that is no. Have we ever been worthy of salvation? The answer to that is no. But here is the, just the marvelous work of God. It is why justification is, and our understanding of it is paramount. And that is, is that God looks upon Christ to bring about our justification. He looks upon Christ and His righteousness because that righteousness has been imputed to us. And He looks upon Christ and the reality of His death. And His sacrifice for our sin, bearing the wrath of God as we have read over and over and over again. As we have looked at Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5. 
How many times have we heard that? Is that He is our propitiation. And that He stood and took the wrath of God. Why? So that we might be justified. So that we might be saved. I want you to hear today that your salvation doesn't rest upon the perfection of your faith that you have now. But the work of God in our lives is the perfecting of faith in us as we live, which is why Paul was able to look at Abraham under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and give us the real commentary of his life. And that is, is that his faith was counted to him as righteousness Not because his faith was perfect, but because God was perfecting that faith in him because there was one who was perfectly righteous. And when God was looking at Abraham, God saw him behind Christ looking at the righteousness of Christ in the same way that our faith is counted to us as righteousness. So wherein does the assurance of our hope rest? It rests in, look, if you will, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The assurance of our eternity with Christ rests in the fact that Christ is there. Having walked the way of death. Having enjoyed the life that comes in the resurrection. And having now been Placed as we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Go back and look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Look in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sin, did what? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's where He is. Most of us, being from around here, uh, know a little bit about boats and water. I might go out in my boat without all the stuff that I should have to have. I might go without the right number of life preservers. I might go without flares. I might go uh, without the whistle. I might even go without water and food. But you know what I am not going to go out in my boat without? I'm not going to go out without an anchor. I'm not going to go out without an anchor. Why? Because if something happens and I can't navigate any longer, that anchor becomes the thing that saves me from being taken out to places that I cannot be found. It's interesting that Paul uses some of this same kind of analogy and the author of Hebrews brings it forefront. He uses two nautical pictures. One is of the anchor and two is of the forerunner. Ships would sail. They would come up to the place of harbor. Most of those harbors were created just like coming into Rich Inlet or coming in at Riceville Beach Inlet were created by jetties or sandbars and things of that nature that required the ship to be able to come in on full tide. Ship couldn't come in unless there was a full tide for fear of running up on the jetty, running up on the sandbar. And if the ship runs up on the jetty and the sandbar, you know what happens? It's destroyed. So what would happen? The ship would sail up to the place that it would port. The tide would not be 
a full tide. They couldn't go in. They would have another boat take the anchor, the forerunner, and carry the anchor into the harbor and anchor it until the tide was full and the ship could sail in to harbor. That is a picture that we have here. Jesus Christ, our anchor, has gone into heaven. And for the believer, there is that line tied all the way back to him. And our souls are anchored in heaven. So that we would not run adrift. And we would hold on to that anchor. There's two pictures here. God has promised and we hold on to that promise knowing that our souls are anchored in heaven. Believer, please, brother and sister in Christ, take heart. God intended for us to be assured of what He has done for us in Christ. Not assured based upon your goodness. Not assured based upon what you may or may not do. And if you've not yet trusted Christ, hear me today that your life as mine has been shaped for one thing and that all the other little things that take place in the course of our lives and all the relationships and all the things that are happening in the course of our life are all shaped for one thing and that is for us to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ and what Christ has done that we might know Him and in believing Him and trusting Him and following Him. In other words, believing in God's Word and the promise that He has made and the security of that promise and what He has done through Christ is the anchor of our souls in heaven. I want more than anything in my own life and I want more than anything in our lives is that we live with that sense of consciousness. That, brother and sister and friend, will enable us to navigate through this sinful hard, nasty, mean world. And we will do so without fear. And we will do so looking ahead to Christ. Because He is our hope. He is our hope.